Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to AOA. Thank you so much for joining us, letting us be part of your day. We always appreciate it. Lots going on. We are going to talk about Prop 12 in California, the impacts on pork exports. Uh, We also have a court decision, another court ruling on that. We'll talk about that. And we'll talk about the West Coast port backlog. We'll talk about all that with Travis Arp the Senior Director of Export Services for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. We're going to talk markets and weather and uh, stocks and supplies. We're going to talk with the Chief Economist for USDA, Dr. Seth Meyer, will be joining us a little bit later on in the program. And a lot of issues are going on concerning taxes, different proposals. We'll talk with Tanner Beamer with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association about some of those issues and some of the other developments in Congress this week. In fact, that's where we start now with the news. Phil Brashier with AgriPulse Communications joins us. Phil, thanks for hopping on and being with us as we have more developments on the infrastructure package. It uh, looks like we've taken another step, not a final one, but another step. What can you tell us? Well, great to be here, uh, Mike. Uh, yeah, we took a huge step uh, yesterday when uh, the Senate negotiators in the, in the White House announced that they had... Uh, uh, agreed to the finalized agreement on the on the details of uh, of uh, what would be 550 billion dollars in new spending down a little bit from what uh, they talked about earlier in terms of the broad framework which but uh, 550 billion dollars we got uh, there's a summary floating around with how that uh, that money would be spent we don't haven't seen legislative text yet so uh, there's still some things to be worked out uh, but a whole lot closer to getting this uh, passed through the Senate. And a lot of money for what most of us consider traditional uh, infrastructure projects, right? Roads, bridges, things like that, and and I would assume broadband as well. Yes, uh, about $110 billion for road and bridges. The broadband funding is about $65 billion, which is a very large sum of money. Uh, the bulk of that, about $40 billion, are actually routed through states. Uh, states would decide how to divvy that up. Uh, there's some basic requirements, or appear to be some basic requirements. We'll have to see the, see the text. Uh, then $2 billion of the $65 billion that actually go to USDA, which has been sort of the lead in terms of rural broadband funding. Uh, but they would get about $2 billion, of a relatively small amount, out of the uh, $65 billion. Now, let's look at how this would be paid for. And I guess a key that kind of helped move this forward was that they're going to use some unspent COVID relief funds for paying for some of this? Yes, definitely. A large chunk of that will come. Uh, that's something that uh, Republicans have really, uh, really pushed for. Now, Republicans also wanted to uh, uh, get into user fees, and uh, they, they very much would like to put a, 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 a equivalent of the gas tax onto electric vehicles. Uh, but uh, President Biden has uh, strictly opposed anything that would affect uh, uh, consumers basically, unless they make four, more than four hundred thousand dollars a year, so that uh, really restricts what you could do in terms of the gas tax or user fees or tolls or anything like that. So that was off the table. So they had to be creative about other other sources of funding. So where does it go from here? Well, uh, the Senate is still working on it. Uh, they uh, took a key vote uh, yesterday evening to uh, begin debate on the bill. Uh, as, I, as I mentioned, they're still working out the text. So uh, the Senate uh, will uh, presumably pass this uh, in the next few days. Now, the big question is what happens in the House. Now, Speaker Pelosi mm-hmm. has said they're not going to pass this bill unless uh, unless the, thus there's also a uh, a $3.5 trillion reconciliation package with all the other Democratic spending priorities. 
passed through the Senate that the House could do. That they've got to have both bills, uh, this bipartisan bill and the, uh, the $3.5 trillion Democratic bill. Uh, you know, progressives over in the House, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this bipartisan infrastructure package is not big enough uh, for them. So uh, we'll see. I mean, the Democrats have a very narrow majority in the uh, in the House. Uh, there's this uh, this package, uh, this infrastructure package, is a long way to go. Yeah, that was. I was just thinking that very same thing. This is a big step, but it still has many more steps and some big steps to go before it uh, actually uh, is passed. Yeah, exactly. So we look at the. You know, it took them this long to get this far and to still have as big a hurdles as they've got to overcome. What kind of a timeline are they looking at with the August recess coming up? Well, uh, the House is uh, planning to be up uh, after this week. Uh, uh, Senate Majority Leader Schumer announced uh, on the floor last night that he was uh, going to continue to insist that the uh, uh, the Democrats also move on this uh, budget reconciliation package, or at least budget resolution, uh, which is the first step in doing the $3.5 trillion bill they want to do. Uh, they were going to do that before they started the August recess, so we'll see. But uh, he's still insisting on this two-track two track strategy. So. Uh, we'll see. Uh, the next uh, next few days are going to be pretty important. Yeah, we'll see. Nothing seems to get action in Congress more than a, a go home uh, <laughs> deadline, right? That's what usually gets them moving. <laughs> uh, absolutely. Uh, end of the year, uh, a, a government sh- a government shutdown is uh, uh, almost as good. <laughs> Yep, that, that takes those kind of, uh, uh, you know, deadlines to get them to really move. Other deadlines, that they just ignore, but those are the ones that seem to get their attention. All right, Phil, thanks a lot. A lot happening. We appreciate the update. Great to be here. Take care. Phil Brashier with AgriPulse Communications. So this was a big step with Senate negotiators reaching an agreement with the White House on the bipartisan infrastructure package that would provide $550 billion in new spending for roads and bridges, waterways, rural broadband, and several other uh, key areas. But it still does, as we just pointed out, have a long ways to go. Big, I'll emphasize this again. We talked about this, but mentioned again, a big part of this uh, to get, th- get it this far was to get them to use unspent COVID relief funds rather than coming up with some of the other uh, proposals that have been out there to help pay for it. So that helped move it this far, but it still has a long ways to go. We'll keep you updated on the infrastructure package and several other things that are going on right now in Washington, D.C. We've also had an appeals court reject the pork producer's challenge to California Prop 12. We're going to talk about Prop 12 next. What impact, if that goes into effect, what impact would that have on pork exports? And we're also going to look at that port situation on the West Coast. Been backed up for some time. Any relief there? Are they getting that worked out? We'll talk with Travis Arp with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. That's next here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. DTN and Progressive Farmer bring producers the best content in agriculture. Each day our editors post unique content to our website, bringing you the latest news and information you need for your day-to-day business decisions. DTN and Progressive Farmer provide insights throughout the year to questions like, what is the outlook for corn yields in 2021? Will feed prices surge? What about land prices? And what's today's weather forecast for my farm? For more intelligence like this, visit DTNPF.com. Are you heading to NCBA in Nashville? The Nashville Corn Growers has a great lineup for you on Wednesday, August 11th. Mike Adams will be broadcasting live at 9 a.m. from the U.S. Meat Export Federation booth on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. At 12.30 in the Learning Lounge, NCGA will host a panel discussion with U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef and the U.S. Meat Export Federation as they discuss the partnerships between corn and cattle. 
we'll see you in Nashville. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. Any Anyone could sell you soybean seed. Channel Seedsman placed products to perform. With Channel Extend Flex Soybeans and Channel Roundup Ready to Extend Soybeans, you'll get the excellent weed control you want and the high yield potential you need. Make the most of next season with the Roundup Ready Extend crop system and expert recommendations from Channel Seedsman. Ask a seedsman in your area for recommendations for your fields. Check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. Always read and follow grain marketing and all their stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. You're listening to AOA Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, California's Prop 12 has survived yet another legal challenge in a federal appeals court. This challenge had been brought by the National Pork Producers Council and American Farm Bureau Federation, which alleged Prop 12 imposed excessive costs on out-of-state pork producers who will have to comply with the law's animal housing requirements. But the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, ruled against uh, the Pork Producers and Farm Bureau in a 3-0 decision. Jim Monroe, spokesman for the National Pork Producers Council, said we are disappointed in the court's decision and maintain our position on Prop 12. It is a clear violation of the U.S. Constitution's Commerce Clause. We are evaluating the decision and our next steps. All right, let's uh, talk more about Prop 12 with Travis Arp. He's the Senior Director of Export Services for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Travis, thanks for joining us. Uh, From your perspective, as far as exports are concerned, how will Prop 12, if implemented, how will that impact our pork exports? Yeah, good morning. And uh, uh, we see the potential just based off of the proposed regulatory text for, for Prop 12 really just to cause some potential complications and logistical issues for U.S. Ex- uh, pork exports. Uh, we send about 50 percent. Uh, a little less than 50% of our pork exports transit through the state of Colorado. They leave, or through California, excuse me. They leave the country uh, via these California ports. And based off of some of the requirements that California has or could potentially put into place in terms of indicating uh, whether that product is Prop 12 compliant um, and the ability for an exporter to kind of move that product logistically through the state of California. Um, could potentially pose some issues to our U.S. pork exporters that use that state as a transit hub. So, I mean, these actions don't happen in a vacuum, right? Uh, they impact, they're going to, uh, Prop 12 is going to impact producers in other states, and it will impact, as you said, uh, and we'll see to what degree, but could have an impact then on us moving pork through California and to our markets around the world. Yeah, uh, some of the the points in the regulatory text uh, that California has proposed is that uh, on commercial documents, so shipping documents, bills of lading, 
the exporter would have to indicate on there whether that product is Prop 12 compliant or not. And so it's it's really not an uncommon thing that, you know, an exporter is prepared a shipment uh, to go out of uh, a West Coast port in California. It gets to a cold storage in, say, Long Beach or Oakland uh, or L.A., and then for some reason, maybe that sale falls through, and then they have to figure out what to do with the product, and sometimes it can stay on the domestic market. Well, if that product's not Prop 12 compliant, now that exporter really doesn't even have the option to move that product within the state of California. they got to move it out of the state, move it somewhere else, and find an alternative market for it. Uh, the other aspect of it is, is that the California Department of Agriculture has stated that they can um, inspect product coming across the border into the state of California whenever they um, kind of on an ad hoc basis. And a lot of this product is loaded in the Midwest. It's put into a container that's sealed with a USDA seal. And now if that product's going into the state of California, the Department of Agriculture could potentially break that seal, open up the container, do an ad hoc inspection. And now you're talking about issues with uh, export documents, regulatory documents issued by USDA. It just kind of creates um, this, these logistical challenges for our exporters that are going to make it a little less uh, uh, ideal to move product through the state of California because of this. All right, so we'll wait and see what the next move is on Prop 12. But again, this is the uh, second uh, case, the second challenge to Prop 12 that has been denied by the court. So we'll see where it goes from here. We're talking with Travis Arp, Senior Director of Export Services for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. All right, Travis, uh, this ongoing backup at West Coast Ports, uh, what's the situation there now? Are we making any improvements on that at all? Uh, at this point, it looks like uh, it's. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily paint the picture as, it, as it's improving, but it's been somewhat status quo over the course of the summer. Uh, we're kind of getting into a critical period here in the next couple months as we start to see uh, increased imports from Asia as we get into the back school season and, and things of that nature. And you know, we've talked with some of the the ports on the in California, uh, and they've indicated that that import numbers are rising. Uh, so uh, not necessarily a good sign that we're going to see a lot of improvement as we get through the next couple months. Uh, cold storages are very full on the West Coast, and just kind of anecdotally from our exporters, the situation is still pretty challenging. So, uh, you know, still need to see some improvement uh, over the course of, you know, the rest of this year before we start to see things start uh, really clear out there. It'll take some time won't it to to work through that backlog yeah absolutely i mean we've already seen uh product been piling up there on the west coast uh over the first you know seven months of this year and as we look forward and there's not really a good silver lining that shows that the situation is going to improve particularly from an increase in imports coming in uh maintain delays uh, on getting that product onto boats um, we don't have a lot of optimism that we're going to see that backlog clear out here in the near term, and we're probably looking into 2022 before we really see um, uh, that pipeline start to normalize as to what it was kind of pre-pandemic. Well, give us an idea of the impact of that. What It, it influences and affects a lot of different areas, right? Uh, kind of give us a, an idea of what, it, what it's costing us, what it, it what it means to uh, our export business and what's at stake here. Well, yeah, just from the, the red meat side, I mean, we are, are moving um, on the beef side, almost 70% of our exports are going through the West Coast, through the West Coast a little over 50% of our exports uh, from the pork side are going through the West Coast. And while, you know, we've seen really good export numbers, uh, over the last several months, and, and we've been on a really good pace, uh, those numbers could be significantly better um, just because there's, you know, hundreds of containers um, that, that are sitting there still waiting to go out. And so, um, I mean, you're talking well into the, um, you know, the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars that, that's at stake here uh, on the amount of product that goes through there. And, and like I said, our, our numbers have been good from an export standpoint, but they could certainly be better if these logistical challenges weren't facing our exporters. 
how many ports are we talking about? Well, really, the, the main congestion has been centered around Southern California, uh, L.A. and Long Beach. Uh, as those, that's really uh, two of the major ports that move a lot of, of the agriculture volume um, from an export standpoint. But when you get those two ports backed up, then you have vessels that are moving up to Oakland and looking to try and just find kind of a more normalized port there, and that's caused backup, backups in Oakland, and it just kind of works its way up the coast. Um, when you include Seattle and uh, Tacoma, Washington in there, that port has been more steady, I would say, uh, over the course of this year, but not without its issues. Uh, but really four main port- ports there on the West Coast that are moving the, the lion's share of the volume for agriculture exports. Is this a labor issue? Um, I think that the labor, I mean, well, labor is always going to be a problem um, and has for some time. But I think really this has been more a function of just how much the U.S. is importing into those West Coast ports. We're seeing absolutely record volumes um, over the, the first seven months of this year. And when there's so many containers coming into the United States, there's so much demand in Asia to get those containers that are offloaded back. Um, you know, empty containers taking up space on vessels uh, is, is really, to me, you know, one of the critical issues here. Uh, and it, it really, at this point, has less to do with, you know, COVID restrictions and, and labor avail- availability and more just is a volume issue at this point, from my perspective. What will it take to break through? Do we need the government to do something or what's it going to take? Well, I, I think uh, um, kind of the generally accepted solution is you just need to see more of a normalized supply and demand situation in the U.S. Um, that said, there are some policy, um, potential policy resolutions out there. Um, the port infrastructure was mentioned in the, more, the most recent uh, Biden administration executive order um, and, and kind of directed the Federal Maritime Commission to take more of an oversight role in helping normalize the port situation. Uh, there's also a, a potential proposed bill, bipartisan bill coming forward, um, that is uh, going to look at giving more enforcement to the Federal Maritime Commission hmm. and trying to mandate these vessels carrying more U.S. exports out of the country. Sounds like it's going to take time, though. Travis, thanks for the update. Thank you. Travis Arp with the U.S. Meat Export Federation. Up next, we'll talk with USDA's Chief Economist, Dr. Seth Meyer, right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with vapor grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. And Anyone could sell you soybean seed. Channel Seedsman placed products to perform. With Channel Extend Flex Soybeans and Channel Roundup Ready to Extend Soybeans, you'll get the excellent weed control you want and the high yield potential you need. Make the most of the next season with the Roundup Ready Extend crop system and expert recommendations from Channel Seedsman. Ask a seedsman in your area for recommendations for your fields. Check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. Always read and follow grain marketing and all their stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. You're listening to AOA, I'm Kirsten Rall. The U.S. spring wheat crop did not look any better on the second day of the spring wheat tour in North Dakota. As participants walked through fields in the central region of the state, the yield estimates were more disappointing than day one results in the southeast region. The day two yield estimate was 24.6 bushels per acre compared to 40.8 bushels per acre in 2019. The U.S. weather forecast for the next three days has some of the best chances of rain 
rain across the Corn Belt that we've seen in over a week, putting prices under pressure. On the Board of Trade this morning, September corn trading five and a half cent higher at 554 and three quarters. The December contract, six cents higher at 554 and three quarters. For soybeans, the August contract trading 11 cents higher at 1443. The September contract up 12 at 1382 and a fraction of a cent. For wheat, Chicago wheat September up nine and a fraction at 698. Kansas City wheat September up a dime at 669 and a half cent. Minneapolis spring wheat September up 20 and a fraction at 924. The December contract trading 16 and three quarters of a cent higher at 907 and a half cent. The confirmation of African swine fever in the Dominican Republic sent concern through the market, causing hog futures to plummet in cash cattle country. Asking prices are around $122 plus in the south and $200 plus in the north. Beef cutouts are expected to be higher with light to moderate box movement. August live cattle up 25 cents at 123.32. The October contract up 12 at 128.60. In feeder cattle, the August contract down 47 at 159.70. September down 42 at 163.02. In lean hogs, the August contract $1.27 higher at 106.97. The October contract up $1.22 at 90.72. You're listening to AOA. I'm Kirsten Rawl. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. Well, we've been talking a lot lately about the markets, the weather markets, and the questions about... uh, about production with the very dry conditions in the west better conditions in the east and of course the tight stocks and how the markets are reacting to all this thought we'd get some uh, thoughts on where we're at from uh, usda's chief economist dr seth meyer who joins us now seth thanks for being with us hey, thanks for having me uh so what do you what are you focused on what are you seeing when you look at the uh, this question do the can the good areas of production this year overcome, uh, offset the the down areas when we're looking at such a tight stock situation? Well, and, and right, and, and, and clearly when we're talking about good areas, bad areas, we're talking about things like corn and soybeans, right? When we think right. about mm-hmm. spring wheat, it's real hard to think about a, a good spring wheat area of any size at the moment. So now, and, and, and so when we, you know, you, you take Des Moines, Iowa and anything north and west of Des Moines, Des Moines, Iowa is looking pretty dry and everything south and east of Des Moines, Iowa is looking a little bit better. And so I, I, I think from a, from a USDA standpoint, this August 12th report is kind of going to give us crop production is going to kind of give us that first look at that, because that's also the first report where there's a, survey-based estimate for yields for corn and soybeans, and we'll get kind of a picture by state. We already kind of get a feel for what's going on in terms of of condition reporting. But again, that's also subjective. Uh, It's a subjective statistic, right? It's, It's, you know, rank the crop versus in August, we'll get some information out of NAS that actually gives us a better state by state picture of where they think things are at. So it's so different this year. Uh, in so many years in the past, we've had uh, weather problems and production issues and concerns and questions. But we usually had, 
you know, big stocks to fall back on. Now it's a tight stock situation with some of these questions. That that sure changes things. No, absolutely, and that's absolutely why you see the market sensitive about this. I mean, we've we've you know we we've, we've tightened things down considerably. I mean, just think back a few years where, you know, when we're in the midst of, of, say, trade issues with China and what our carryout stocks were and how much different of a position we are in today. And that's why the market is is really forward. It's really looking at this issue. And, and, and I'll remind you that August report, you know, the NASA is reporting out on this crop as it develops. The crop's not done in August. It's not done. So the, this is kind of your first look about where we're at at that moment. And so it'll continue to evolve, and the market will continue to watch this. You're absolutely right. The talk st- tight, tight stock situation is going to make this market sensitive to where we end up. And and kind of, you know, we had uh, really, you know, good combined corn and soybean acres this year, but it wasn't record large. Yeah, and let's talk about that because there have been a lot of questions about the acres and why they haven't – been higher in the reporting than uh, than they have been and some have questioned you know if, if you couldn't get higher soybean acres this year it makes you wonder when could you because of the price situation being what it was what are your thoughts on on acres yeah so 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 i think it was it was a very interesting signal so nas came out and kind of said hey farmers what do you intend to do and they printed that number out right and 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 you know, I think that there was a general expectation in the market that we would go higher in terms of combined mm-hmm. corn and soybean acres, but you would have to be both simultaneously pushing record soybean area and record combined corn and soybean area. You know, I don't know where that horizon is out of there, but, you know, it may not be a one-off year signal where we get this jump in prices. And I'll remind you all kind of the sentiment in the market before August 2020. It was totally different than it is now. You know, so so maybe this takes a little bit of time, but I too, I'm looking at principal crop acres, and I'm saying, hey, at these prices, are we good? You know, would we would we get more? I think some of it's western drought when you think of principal crop acres, but that's not all of it. That's not enough of it. So I I, I guess I would say, you know, it was hard to see where we could get more corn and soybean acres, much more than where we were at after the farmers gave their intention of overall principal crop area. We're talking with USDA Chief Economist Dr. Seth Meyer. So I've I've thrown out this hypothetical question, hoping that it never occurs, that the situation never occurs, but it's one I had never really thought much about. And so I just kind of wondered what what would happen if we entered into a situation where we didn't grow enough, uh, we had such tight stocks that we, you know, weren't even at a break-even point. What happens then? Who decides whether you have to stop selling, or can the government? Does the government step in and do that, or is that just a function of the market, or or how does that work, or would it work? Well, I'll, I'll, we we can answer this in both a theoretical way and what I think a good idea is, right? So I think uh-huh. we can I think we can agree that trade is absolutely important here, and if folks were to take a short run look and say, oh, we, you know, we need to, you know, keep this grain at home and let's do something which overrides the market, you will lose those export markets, right? That's long-term mm-hmm. damage. If you, you, we have a very good tradition here, we build up in the United States as being a reliable ex- exporter, a reliable supplier. You know, go back to, and, and I'm going way back here, go back to 1973 and export prohibitions on soybeans to Japan. Folks will say, hey, that, right or wrong, they'll say that kick-started Brazil in soybean production. Uh, you know, go back and, and, and Carter's 1980 uh, prohibition on sales of wheat to the Soviet Union. You know, was it very effective? I, I think they're, you know, Whatever gains folks think they might get in the short run by taking such actions, distort those market signals. The producers are going to get the wrong signal based upon that, and I think it does long-term damage to our ability to be seen as a reliable export supplier, right? But as you've seen, I've gave you a couple of examples about how that's been done in the distant past. You know, and so you know, the executive branch is the it could could take action. Right. Or you can see legislative action. 
But I really think, I really hope we have learned our lessons on some of this and kind of let the market figure this out Hmm. and not distort the market. Because I think those distortions have big negative effects that really overwhelm any short-term benefits that certain groups might see, right? I think the last thing a corn producer is going to want to see is an export control slapped on us and, you know, market access that we've built up and that reliable reputation for corn and beans really destroyed and, you know, send more business elsewhere for for the next decade. Yeah, and I see what you're saying. And because the examples you cited in the past are, those were seemingly for political reasons that the, those embargoes uh, were put in place. If it was really a situation, though, where there was a concern for our domestic food supply, would that, wouldn't that make a difference, though, in that decision? Well, our domestic food supply. So, so I, I think we ration. You know, the market is really, I mean, look at where we're at now. We really start to ration out demand when we get those stocks tighter. That's the market doing that allocation, right? And remember, we're net exporters of food. And I I understand what you're saying. Hey, what if we got ourselves in a tight situation? We would continue to ration. We would continue to ration demand. We'd continue to ration trade demand. And, you know, that would send the appropriate signals. That would send the appropriate signals for us to do that. Maybe we'd even import a little bit of different products that we normally export. You know, we want to have that same access in the world market that that, uh, that that we would rely on in such a situation. It is really trade which moderates those swings. And I re- really – it is hard for me to envision a situation where it would make sense to do that, quite honestly, yeah. right? I, I think we'd ration lots of – people would shift their consumption patterns, um, you know, if we had some – you know, trouble in this market, folks that consume less of that and more of something else. And that's what we yep. see in terms of rationing a demand. Yeah, that's hopefully how it would work out. But boy, in the days in which we live now with the political climate as it is, you would wonder if politics somehow would step in and 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 take action. So you, I, I know I just brought it up and hope it never we never get to that yeah. point. But I, I, just, I have been thinking about it. So as you look at where we're at right now, um, Obviously, we still have a ways to go with this production uh, season, but it looks like it's going to stay a, a volatile uh, weather market, though, uh, as we proceed through this rest of this summer. I, I think so. I think that that you know we'll we'll get on the same page in 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 the August crop production in Washington. Right. That's its function. You know, I, I know that that sometimes producers say, hey, this works against us. Now, what it is, is it po- it gets us all on the same page, provides that market information and kind of gets everybody in the same. OK, here's where we're at now. Everybody make the best financial decisions for yourselves going forward. Do we need to ration demand? Do we have a little bit more than we expected? Let's make let's make informed decisions going forward. And so I'm really big on, you know, market information. Let those actors, let those producers, let those processors make the best decisions they can. So I think we'll get our first kind of peek at this in August. That's not the last word. I think everybody, you know, uh, I'm from Iowa. Everybody in Iowa knows the crop's not finished in August. And so let's, you know, that'll be our first look. And then we'll continue to do that for the next couple months and see where we're at. Those will be the signals to the market to, to say, hey, ration demand if you need to, or, hey, we got a little bit more than we thought. Let's, let's work through it. Dr. Seth Meyer, USDA Chief Economist. Good to talk with you, Seth. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like the old days. A lot of attention will be on the August crop report, although, as he said, it's uh, it's not the final one. It's, it didn't tell us exactly what the crop's going to be, certainly too soon, but uh, a, little more, a little more focus on it than we've had in a while. All right, coming up next, some of the uh, different tax proposals before Congress and more on the infrastructure bill. Stay with us. You're listening to AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus... 
with the way this year's been going. <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. Choose the proven performance of the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, featuring high-yielding Extend Flex soybeans and the exceptional weed control of Extend to Max herbicide with Vapor Grip technology. Elite genetics, triple herbicide tolerance, flexibility that delivers results, backed by 25 years of innovation. That's the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, the system of choice. Extend to Max is a restricted-use pesticide. Always follow stewardship practices, all pesticide label directions, and check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. Channel Seedsmen don't just sell soybean seed. You can trust them to understand your fields and place Channel Soybean products to perform. With the Roundup Ready Extend crop system, including triple-stacked Channel Extend Flex soybeans, you can be confident you're getting the excellent weed control you want and high-yield potential you need to make the most of the season. Find a Seedsman in your area for recommendations for your fields. Check with your state pesticide regulatory agency for specific restrictions in your state. Always read and follow grain marketing and all their stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. For more than 135 years, the editors of Progressive Farmer have provided generations of farmers and ranchers with the information they need and trust to make informed and profitable decisions. We know you need that content delivered on multiple platforms, so it's available when you want it. That's why we created our weekly podcast called Field Posts. Join me, Sarah Mock, each week as I interview agriculture's top thought leaders, as well as farming's most diverse team of editors at the Progressive Farmer and DTN on a wide range of subject matter. From farm policy and crop production to finances, technology, and so much more, you'll have a front row seat to learn and engage in what's happening in agriculture today. You can find the podcast listed on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or by visiting our website at dtnpf.com backslash field posts. Every Tuesday, we'll be sitting around the table, sponsored by CHS. Join us and learn how CHS creates the vital connections that empower agriculture, helping farmers and ranchers like you succeed. We'll hear from different voices from throughout the cooperative system, sharing stories about how good things happen when people work together. Join us around the table every Tuesday or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Are you heading to NCBA in Nashville? The National Corn Growers has a great lineup for you on Wednesday, August 11th. Mike Adams will be broadcasting live at 9 a.m. from the U.S. Meat Export Federation booth on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. At 12.30 in the Learning Lounge, NCGA will host a panel discussion with U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef and the U.S. Meat Export Federation as they discuss the partnerships between corn and cattle. We'll see you in Nashville. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. 
information America's farmers and ranchers need to know on AOA. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, lots going on in our nation's capital. Uh, as we talked about earlier, a step towards an infrastructure package, but uh, still many steps to go in that. A lot of proposals are out there. How do we pay for all the spending? What about some of the tax proposes that are proposals that are out there as far as making some changes a lot of people in agriculture very concerned about that let's uh, bring in tanner beamer ncba's director of government affairs and uh, market regulatory policy tanner thanks for joining us uh um, what can you tell us where are we on the tax front as far as any changes that would significantly impact agriculture you know, we're still waiting to see uh, some of the details from the legislative package, which will ultimately be moving through Congress. We expect in the next couple of weeks um, and potentially, you know, in the next couple of months, although there has been substantial movement on negotiations between the White House and Senate Republicans on a big multi-billion dollar uh, infrastructure package. Uh, obviously, how we're going to pay for that uh, is where a lot of these conversations about tax come into play. Um, but our priority in that effort is going to be to preserve the stepped-up basis for agricultural operations uh, and, and as well as other uh, tax policies that benefit farmers and ranchers across the country. Um, but until we start to see legislative text get put on paper, um, it's a little bit uh, early to speculate what that's going to look like, but uh, rest assured we are uh, engaged on that issue and watching very closely uh, because once we do start to see some of the details from the agreements that they're reaching, uh, this package is going to move fairly quickly. Yeah, we've heard so much about possible changes to stepped-up bases. We've heard about changes to capital gains taxes. We've heard about a transfer tax. Uh, is Are any of those gaining any traction at all? You know, uh, our conversations with the White House have been very clear that these are tools that agriculture relies upon, and especially in the last two years uh, where we've seen unprecedented market volatility and margins for cow-calf operators, stockers, backgrounders, and even cattle feeders are, are really tight right now. And we need to be doing everything in our power to be making sure that they also are allowed to recover from this pandemic along with Main Street America. Uh, you know, that's going to be our top priority coming into this package, um, and, and they have seemed to be receptive to that um, at all levels. Uh, we'll just wait and see kind of how receptive they end up being when we see that final text. Yeah, one encouraging sign has been that members of both parties have expressed concerns about some of these proposals. Uh, the other thing you have to really watch, and I know you you do very closely, is uh, it, you can say something's not a direct tax, but there are ways to have an indirect tax that can be just as costly. So that's, you have to always watch for that too, right? That's right. I mean, when we're looking at these issues, we really are thinking about not just what is on paper, but what the net effect of that policy is going to be, right? And so at the end of the day, we are focused on reducing the tax burden in whatever form that takes for America's farmers and ranchers, um, predominantly in, in some of these discussions where we start talking about pay-fors, right, where it might not necessarily be a direct tax, but it still has a, a, an effect on the overall tax burden of an individual producer. Mm -hmm. Talking with Tanner Beamer with NCBA. Now, there have been uh, some hearings this week uh, that very much uh, have an impact, could have an impact on the, uh, the cattle market uh, moving forward. Some interesting testimony back and forth. Uh, kind of give us a review of what stood out to you. Yeah, so yesterday there were actually two hearings, one in the House Agriculture Committee's Livestock and Foreign Agriculture Subcommittee, and that was on the state of the beef supply chain. Uh, there were four witnesses at that hearing. They were all academics, Ph.D. economists from several different land-grant institutions and private industry, um, and it really was just echoing the calls that NCBA and other groups have made for several months now on the need to bring more transparency to the market. Uh, Dr. Jason Lusk from Purdue University offered some, some suggestions on how to make LMR an even more effective market transparency and price discovery tool. But we also heard um, more issues uh, about in terms of getting operational packing capacity uh, more uh, brought online in terms of, you know, increasing throughputs from the existing processing plants. You know, the issue of labor. Um, we talked a little bit about automation, which, you know, in, in the short term, automation on the lines in some of these meat packing plants is probably 
probably not a very tenable solution because we just don't have the technology yet. But it is not going to be as long as I think some people believe it's going to be before we start to see automation become incorporated on some of these lines, which will help, <clears throat> excuse me, which will help tremendously as we're trying to bring throughputs up and process through more cattle to bring supply and demand back into balance. And then the last thing that was noted in that hearing that I found so interesting was cybersecurity, because that's not an issue that we talk about very often uh, in the cattle business. And the importance of having an, a, a, a robust strategy to combat cyber attacks. Uh, we're living in a digital age, and as we saw with JBS a couple months ago, you know, it, it really does have a substantial impact on our ability to do business uh, if we are vulnerable to some of those ransomware type attacks. That was interesting, too, uh, the discussion about, okay, it's one thing to say we're going to have independent, smaller plants out there, but how small can they be and still operate, right, still make money, still stay in business? Uh, Those are interesting questions. They are, and I think that the witnesses yesterday really tried to make a point that there's something out there for everybody, right? There was a, a, a gal from Missouri who uh, her a lot of her research area is focused on uh, farmer-rancher cooperatives and um, how they can do more in the processing sector. And, uh, you know, if they are to do that, in their, maybe perhaps their efficiency is not increasing throughput of commodity cattle like maybe the big four or some of the other larger packers. Maybe their efficiency lies with creating some of these direct-to-consumer uh, channels or you know, partnering with retailers on a- adding additional value to their product through different labels or process verified programs. You know, There really is something out there for everybody, but it's more important than just adding more hooks into the system. Those hooks have to be tied to a viable business model. So it's interesting. It's been a very interesting week, and we'll see where it goes from here. Tanner, thank you very much. Thank you. Take care. Tanner Beamer, NCBA's Director of Government Affairs and Market Regulatory Policy. There'll be a lot to talk about at the NCBA meeting coming up August 10th, 11th, and 12th in Nashville, Tennessee. I'll be there broadcasting from the convention each of those days. All right, Jesse Allen will be filling in for me tomorrow, and he's going to be talking uh, with folks about the spring wheat tour and, and an update on African swine fever continuing to spread. Hope you'll join him here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Are you heading to NCBA in Nashville? The National Corn Growers has a great lineup for you on Wednesday, August 11th. Mike Adams will be broadcasting live at 9 a.m. from the U.S. Meat Export Federation booth on behalf of the National Corn Growers Association. At 12.30 in the Learning Lounge, NCGA will host a panel discussion with U.S. Roundtable for Sustainable Beef and the U.S. Meat Export Federation as they discuss the partnerships between corn and cattle. We'll see you in Nashville.